Welcome. Welcome to Monsters, a true crime podcast. Yes, we're back, and we're back for a very special episode. It's going to be a bonus episode for this week, and it's going to round up my top three most disturbing cases. Mm, I'm excited. I know, and it actually all lined up. Because as if you follow our Instagram, which is at Monsters True Crime, you know that we're going to be covering the one and only Richard Ramirez, a.k.a. the Night Stalker. Yeah. I'm pumped. Do you want to tell the people why you picked the Night Stalker? Well, <laughs> the Night Stalker is kind of like the Nightman. From where? From It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Of course. I showed her the picks. She's not yeah. a huge fan of the show. And I gave him the option to pick from the Golden State Killer. So you need to let us know on Instagram if you have rather heard of the Golden State Killer since the Night Stalker right now is very it's very popular right now because Netflix released a show about him. What's the name of the show? It's called The Night Stalker, The Hunt for a Serial Killer. Oh, wow. I have to admit I haven't watched it yet. Well, neither have I. I have to do that. Just as a reminder, I'm pretty much a true crime newbie here. Ryan doesn't know any of the cases that we're going to be talking about for the most part. Just letting y'all know. Yeah. So, diving right into the episode. Yes. Yes. Oh, oh, real quick. The other reason why it's a good uh, coincidence while we're doing this case on Ramirez today. Other than the fact that today is Saturday and there's a full moon. Full moon tonight. I know, and I didn't know if he was going to pick the Golden State Killer or the Night Stalker. Right. So I was shocked that he picked the Night Stalker because it's literally his birthday this weekend. The Night Stalker's birthday is this weekend. Yeah, it's February 29th, but since it's a leap year, it could be celebrated either the 28th or the 1st of March. Wow. Yeah, so we I guess we're kind of celebrating his birthday even yeah, though he it doesn't very... deserve it. <laughs> Uh, no, not at, I mean, we're about to find, I don't know. We're about to find out. Oh, yeah. I'm excited. Let's start this case off. All right. Oh, also, we forgot to mention, we wanted to say hi to everyone who's oh, yeah, been listening. Thank you. There's a lot of people <clears throat> in Illinois. Illinois, Texas, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania. Like, say hi on Instagram to us. That's the only social media platform Shout we have right now. out to us. I know. Instagram. Thank you for everyone. <laughs> and everyone also in Europe that's listening. Which is strange, but thanks. I know. We, we just really thought this thing up like two weeks ago. I know, and we thought that only like our close family members and friends were gonna be supporting us. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> and we're just so grateful for everyone. I wasn't sure of that even. I know. Now I get nervous when I'm recording because <laughs> well, I know it's not just me and you. It's fun. I know. And but we're gonna, no. we're gonna, it seems like we're gonna keep doing it. So. Yeah, thank you for like over a hundred listens to on Spotify over a hundred, Apple over a hundred. It's crazy. I know. But anyways, what? we will now we will go back to the story. Let's crack this case open. Uh, okay, so we're gonna be covering, as we said, Richard Ramirez, aka the Night Stalker, aka Goat Breath, Wet Leather Smelling Douchebag, as my title says. <laughs> oh my goodness. So descript. He was a volatile piece of shit. Let's get that straight. Who, although he was a serial killer, he didn't have a straight mode of operation. Usually serial killers are very consistent throughout their killings. And Richard Ramirez, which I'm just going to call Richard or Ramirez throughout the case. 
he was very inconsistent in like the people that he would go after and like the way that he would murder people. So he had no rhythm and rhyme to the way that he was killing people. No, he didn't. A lot of his attacks were very random and yeah. very opportunistic. Oh, maybe okay. a little bit of thought in him, but not really. The past two cases, it was very clear that they each had their own sort of. Like, they had a mode of apparatus. I think that's what it's called. Yeah. Yeah, but back to Richard. He was up there in notoriety with Ted Bundy and Jeffrey Dahmer. And BTK, who was fucking gross as fuck. But there are actual... And I want to point that out. Because there's a lot of fan pages dedicated to him. And, like, a couple of them follow us and everything. And it really has to do with the fact that, like... For example, people find this guy, the Night Stalker, attractive. And Ted Bundy and Jeffrey Dahmer. Which I think is insane. <laughs> I don't know how you could be attracted to someone who does, like, these gruesome... Things. I know, but there's a lot of people that are attracted to this tall grime. But well, I'm not a monster like some of the people that listen to this podcast. You guys are really true monsters, but I do have a fact. Yeah. There's a name for this condition, and it's literally listed as a condition that women have when they're uh, when they are attracted to like serial killers, murderers, and rapists. What is it? It's called hybristophilia. Ugh, there's a name for everything. <laughs> there is. But, I mean, if you're into that, like, go ahead. Like, it's not harming anyone. As long as it's not harming anyone. <laughs> right? <laughs> Good point. This story is going to remind us why we are taught to lock our doors and our windows at night. Yeah. It, everything has an origin. Like, I remember when my, like, my grandma and my mom would be like, close the doors and the windows. Mm. And I, oh, I wonder if they knew about the Night Stalker, if they saw it in the news or something. Was he in your area? No, well. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were close. You lived close to the first case. You'll find out. Ooh. But actually, um, it's also going to teach us why, like, husbands or, like, significant others shouldn't sleep on the couch. Oh. Like your dad. <laughs> yeah. But we're going to be talking first, like most of the other cases that we've been doing. We're going to talk about his upbringing. And there are some very interesting key things that happened in his upbringing that I feel molded him into the monster that he became. And it really screwed up, like, his mentality and everything. Yeah, teach us about his start. Ugh. Where he began as it's a human. so long. <laughs> but did you know that Richard Ramirez was actually born in El Paso? No way. Where Steps I'm from. Homeland. I know. I didn't. I honestly, like, I forgot so I was about that. Right. Yeah. It's from El Paso. Yeah. Strange. It's really crazy. So he's a fellow El Pasoan. Hello, everyone. From yeah. El Paso. <laughs> <laughs> but he was born there in February 29th, 1960, which I was saying was a leap year. And <laughs> so both of his parents were Mexican immigrants. And I believe they were from the border town from El Paso, which is Ciudad Juarez. Okay. Anyways, so I think they, they, it, the articles didn't really say, but I think they lived in Mexico for some period of time because his dad was a Mexican police officer for the... 
city of Juarez. And then I think they moved to El Paso because they he lived his like the rest of his time before he moved to California in El Paso. Okay. So they lived in actually Leto Street in El Paso, which is kind of like downtown if anybody is from Texas and El Paso. It's near the um, UMC, the medical center. It's a bad area of town regardless, and it still is, and it was back in his day. No offense if you live there. No offense, and I mean... I'm sure El Paso is nice. It is what it is. I've never been. So once his dad moved, once they moved here, his dad was working for the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railway. So he was working on the railway. And it was saying, actually, that his dad was very temperamental. He couldn't control his anger. He was very violent towards Richard, anyways. Physically? Yeah. Okay. Just physically. He was very abusive. But we shouldn't feel bad for him right now. I mean, I do. I mean, at that at point that in time, po- because he hadn't committed, and, like, he hasn't done anything that he has, like, that he did. I guess as a child, that's sad. Right. I mean, that's what's probably giving him issues from the start. <laughs> yeah. For sure. His mom, Mercedes Ramirez, or Mercedes, she worked at a boot factory, and she was actually... She said that she was exposed to harmful chemicals when she was pregnant with him while she was working at the boot factory. Okay, was he ever, like, brought to a doctor as a kid? Yeah. But four of his siblings, because he's one of four, it would be five total, right? Right. Four of his siblings, um, they were born with birth defects. All of them had some sort of birth defect and it ranged from like respiratory problems to like actual bone deformities. When I feel like when 100% of your kids are like guaranteed to have I know. birth defects, I feel like that's when as a human you should but really consider you're really, maybe If not. this was in the 50s and 60s, like I doubt okay. that people thought about like why this was happening, you yeah. know, harmful chemicals. Like I don't think none of that existed. So Live your life. <laughs> we're going to talk about a couple of things that happened to Richard. And one of those things, and this is why I believe Ikea is telling you to freaking plug or like hammer your dressers onto your wall. Why? Because one of them fell on him when he was two years old. And he had the biggest forehead laceration and he ended up having epileptic seizures after this dresser fell on his head. Okay. He's not doing well. And let me tell you, they're like Hispanic origin and so am I. Like we had like from what I remember from like my grandma and my mom, we had bulky big wood dressers. Yeah. That weigh at least three hundred pounds. Full of crap. Can you imagine you're a child, you're climbing them as kids do? Like a jungle gym. My niece, she actually climbed a dresser and she fell off of it and she broke her elbow from it. No. That's what they, like, yeah. Kids climb shit. Yeah. So this thing fell on his head. He has has epileptic seizures from now on. That's terrible. We're going to fast forward a little bit of time and Richard, he... He starts smoking weed around the age of 10, 
which that's is early which is yeah that's what i wrote here it's, it's a little earlier than like most rebellious kids so he is literally a baby smoking weed i don't even know how he found weed i don't know either probably in his like crappy neighborhood <laughs> definitely and as time goes by richard is getting physically abused by his father and it was so bad at times that he started being gloomy and he started sleeping in the cemetery at night just to get away. Why the cemetery? Like, I don't know. I guess it was maybe it was close by to his house and he just went and he camped the night over there. And he he obviously there. has mental issues very maybe. much. Or maybe so. it was just like a peaceful night and you hear all the crickets and the street sound, the sounds of the night. Ooh. I don't know. Setting the mood. <laughs> but um, he would also go and escape his dad at the El Calvario Catholic Church. And he would actually attend mass there. Good for him. But then it was demolished to make the freeway that we have now there. <laughs> mm. And so we are obviously getting serious loner vibes, right? For sure. And I read that some people that lived in that neighborhood with him, they were saying that there weren't a lot of kids their age, but there was some, like, nice, like, sized kids there. And they all hung together. They said that Richard was never interested in, like, hanging out with them. He was too cool for school. He was too cool for school, so... But he did have friends. And one of his friends was his uh, cousin. His name is Miguel Ramirez who was a combat veteran and he was allegedly a very decorated veteran and he would actually be like talking and boasting and showing off all, all of the things that he would do in Vietnam and one of those things that he would show Richard would be Polaroid pictures and mind you that Richard is like around 12 to 13 years old right now so like he's developing like his sexuality and everything Vietnamese strippers no you wish these Polaroids that Miguel was showing to I don't wish <laughs> <laughs> no but the, these Polaroids that Miguel was showing Richard were of him raping women in Vietnam and there was a Polaroid of him with like a decapitated Vietnamese woman's head this kid is just not set it up for success whatsoever. Not at all. So he would keep hanging out with his uncle and they bonded over the fact that Richard likes smoking weed and his uncle also likes smoking weed. So it was a bunch of like no bueno news. There was nothing good going on there. So now I think that we can safely assume that his mom is being exposed to harmful chemicals at the food factory. He's had multiple head injuries. Yes. Oh, I forgot to mention that he was actually hit in the head very hard with a swing. Oh. Yeah. I think it also caused stitches or whatever. But like on the playground? On the playground oh. when he was like five or something. And then the dresser. And then the dresser when he was two that actually caused a laceration with and stitches. His father beating him. His father is beating him. His uncle's His uncle was showing him like fucking nasty polaroid pictures and just like talking to him about like how being a man is like yeah killing women and he's not even like 12 years old yet 
12, 13. He's smoking weed already. And so we, this really created a perfect storm for Richard, you know. And right now, Richard is really associating violence against women is how you would show us like assertiveness and dominance as a man. It's a social norm in his brain at this point. Yeah, but it doesn't really end here because Miguel still had a lot of, he still had a lot to show Richard. One day, on May 4th, 1973, to be exact, Richard is at Miguel's house, they're hanging out. And then Miguel, he fatally shoots his wife. Oh my gosh. His wife is Jessie. She's So they're having a domestic argument. Like, I assume is normal to Richard's life. And Miguel gets a .38 caliber pistol. Okay. And she he shoots her in the face. And it kills her. That's, that's incredible. I know. In front of him. And then, so, Miguel goes on to trial. And he is actually not found guilty. Why now? Why is everyone getting off? I know. If you've listened to the last couple podcasts. And I did actually want to mention, like, he was found not guilty for the reason of insanity. And that actually, when you plead insanity, like a insanity plea, you, a lot of cases don't win that. So for him to win that is kind of crazy. It's a high burden. It's a very, it's truly rare when... There's a case that's dismissed or whatever because of a plea of insanity. And I had an interesting fact here because I like giving facts. <laughs> In 1991, the National Institute of Mental Health found that less than 1% of county court cases involved the insanity defense. And that of those, only around 1 in 4 was successful. And 90% of the insanity defendants... They were actually diagnosed with a real mental illness. I don't know. So why would the courts not allow that as like a viable defense? I think it's easier to just go with like a guilty plea. Or and not just put guilty. them away. Mm-hmm. Well, mental health rehabilitation was not a priority. No. No, it really wasn't. Then Miguel goes to serve only four years in the Texas State Mental Hospital. And this is showing Richard that you can really commit any crime including murder shooting someone in the face and you can get away with it but not really paying a big consequence for it after that incident richard was starting to withdraw from friends like whatever friends that he had and family and later in that year he moved with his older sister ruth and her husband roberto who was a freaking sicko he was sick He was an obsessive peeping Tom. (laughs) And then when Richard moved in, he would take Richard like peeping Tomming with him. He would like teach him the ways of like how to peek into women's windows and being a fucking creep. I'm just making a mental list of everything that is ruining this person. I know. And you know how you always tell me like what's in the water in Texas that... This is literally it. Like, I really don't know what's happening Again, there. Again, no offense to Texans. I know. I'm from Texas. And I'm like, <laughs> what is happening down there? Uh, yeah. Like, Florida and Texas are, like, the ones with the, the craziest shit happening in the news. Florida. Yeah. Though. So now he's learning the skill of 
peeping and tomming on women and you know <laughs> Richard also around this time now he started doing LSD and he also started taking an interest in Satanism which I really don't know much about Satanism but I've heard another podcast covering this case that like Satanism isn't actually that bad but I really I really don't know much about Satanism and also around that time that period of time like late 1970s into the 1980s this is where the satanic panic was happening <laughs> so I'm sure that he heard of it somehow and he was like starting to researching it and stuff it's all that rock and roll man exactly and metal music Ozzy Osbourne and now we're gonna be entering Richard's adolescence like 12, 13, 14, 15 and he starts developing intense sexual fantasies which I mean at that time we all are <laughs> it's probably stemming from the LSD and at uh, some point and sexual desires that peeping toming on women peeping, well, I mean that's a valuable skill to have as a serial killer and also I read somewhere that when his uncle was showing him those polaroids of the Vietnamese women getting raped and like the beheading and stuff that he started he was feeling aroused by those even at like such an early age like 12 13 yeah so it was making that deep connection between violence and sex and everything with women at a really early age that's all he knows that's all he knows so the only thing that makes his sexual fantasies different from any regular like teenager would be that his involved violence rape and involuntary bondage of women yeah and i did read that due to the head trauma that he received it like aggravated a part of his brain that like made his sexuality he made it like hypersexuality so with that combined with his thoughts of violence and everything that's why like at some point he was he couldn't be controlled like he couldn't stop himself it's like the violent form of viagra everything happened to him yeah so right now he's still in high school and like many other kids in high school he took a job at the local holiday inn and of course, he was stealing stuff from the rooms. He was using the master key that he was also, like, stealing every now and then. What? <laughs> I'd steal some of those little chocolates here and there, but I'm... No, he was stealing legit stuff from, like, people <laughs> staying there. Yeah. <laughs> Even though Richard was living in a bad area of town, they actually called it the Leto Barrio. Ledo Barrio, he didn't participate in any of like the local gang activity that was happening there between the youth. He would though take the opportunity to like commit his own kind of crime and he would like do theftery by like climbing in through windows and doing his own thing, right? And actually his friends that he had and like his family members they nicknamed him Ricky the Klepto because he was a kleptomaniac. He couldn't stop himself from taking shit from anywhere that he was. And one person that I was reading from one of the articles was saying that he was always up to something. We thought he was sick. He had a disease. Everything would stick to his hand. <laughs> he was always stealing stuff. But luckily, the police 
did catch up to him a few times and they'd send him to the Texas Youth Camp for Juvenile Delinquents. And he received some counseling there, but eventually he was released back to school. But after he came back from this reform school, he was a different person. He actually happened to be an average student, like not a academ- like academius, not very smart, but he wasn't failing either. In his last two years of high school, he started cutting class and he really started failing all of his classes. And people that knew him in school said that he would say that school and work really didn't mean anything to him. He re- really didn't pay any ambitious efforts to get like a good job or go to school. And he actually failed to pass the ninth grade twice at Jefferson High School. Which I had a friend that went to a Jefferson High School. And then he dropped out at the age of 17 because he couldn't pass the ninth grade. <laughs> People would tell him that he should join the baseball team or the football team because he was very tall. He was 6'1". And like people in El Paso, nobody is 6'1". Everyone's short. <laughs> yeah. And he would say that he didn't like games and he wasn't interested in sports and he was only really obsessed with rock and metal music and drugs. Oh, I really guessed it. Rock and roll. <laughs> really rock and roll. I and didn't metal. Know that. Nice. And Satanism and everything that like old people back then would like associate the two. <laughs> Hell yeah, brother. But to me it really sounds like he was depressed. You know, his home life, it wasn't very good. As we were discussing earlier, his dad was being physically abusive to him and everything. So he would do everything he could to avoid his parents. And he would never eat at home. And he would only eat junk food. And someone said all he ever would eat was chocolates and Pepsi. He would never brush his teeth. This is where like the whole like goat breath thing comes from. Because he suffered from halitosis. He always had really bad breath. Because he never, ever brushed his teeth. So his mouth was rotting. It was literally just drugs, rock and roll, and like nothing else. He wouldn't even brush his teeth. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. For real. (laughs) That's awesome. Now, time is passing by. And finally, one day at the Holiday Inn on his shift, he gets fired out of nowhere. Because he decides, as he's, I guess, cleaning a room or whatever... To try and rape one of the guests at the Holiday Inn. Luckily, the husband of that woman was coming in and he beat him senseless. And they pressed charges and everything against him. But then the, this couple wasn't from the area. So they, when they flew away, they didn't want to come back. So the charges against Ramirez or Richard, they were dropped against him. So lucky. Very lucky because this is one of the points as we've seen in the other cases where it could have been stopped and like nothing from now on would have happened. What a shame. I know. So now that he's a high school dropout and he no longer has a job, he started professionally uh, burglarizing homes. That's his only ambition is stealing things. Yeah, because now he has another drug habit to support. Well, You want to take a guess? It's white and powdery. There you go. (laughs) So now he's into cocaine. Well, now he can steal things faster. Yeah, he has so much energy. (laughs) Right. And when you get sleepy, no. He's just stealing more houses. Go steal. 
but he starts getting uh, into trouble with local law enforcement. He is arrested three times as an adult in El Paso. The FBI and the police records, they're showing that Richard was picked up on two drug uh, possession charges. There was no indication if he actually served time for these, but the third time that Richard was stopped was for reckless driving. And he was driving a friend's car and on the, like, the passenger seat, there was a toy cap gun, he had a ski mask, and he had a green wallet that was reported stolen. But the owner, the, she couldn't, she or he, couldn't identify, like, who actually stole the wallet. So, like, since that couldn't be proven, like, he stole that wallet, they, that charge was also dismissed. I feel Again. like if you're the one, like, operating the vehicle, you're responsible for everything in the vehicle. I know. Including but stolen if, items. If it was a friend's car, then maybe the friend could have done it. Who knows? Well, maybe the friend could have done it, but you're still responsible for everything in the car. Maybe. Like, if there's a bloody knife in the backseat, oh, it's my friend's. No. Like, but, you can't. I mean, the court systems are stupid sometimes. That could probably work. <laughs> maybe that's part of my frustration. Yeah. And then, well, now he has a marijuana account that was also dropped because... Richard completed a pretrial intervention counseling program. Yeah, because you need counseling for the marijuana, not the cocaine problem. Or the stealing or problem. Or the theft. Shortly after he was released from that, he packed his bags and he moved to sunny California. This is the place to be. Whoop whoop. That's where all the crimes happened in the 1970s, 80s. We're back to California. We're really back to California. And... I kind of have to say I missed it. But he moved there in 1979 with his brother, Julian Jr. to LA, Los Angeles. Once in California, him and his brother were fighting over who needed to pay for like some sort of car repair. And then Richard was like, dude, I'm bouncing. I'm not paying for that crap. So he moved out. And then he started drifting between hashtag like, the hashtag quotation like friends because it said he was a loner but he apparently had friends in LA and he had friends in San Francisco and in El Paso as well and he was staying at hotels when he was not like couch surfing between friends between LA and San Francisco and he was using the alias Richard Munoz which is not very creative but that's what he was using he was staying in particular a hotel. Have you heard of the Cecil or Cecil Hotel? No. Oh my god. Is it popular in Texas? No, it's in actually it's in oh, California. Uh, California, sorry. It's a whole podcast of its own. It's the craziest hotel. It has like ghost sightings and mysterious murders happen there. It's one of those. It's one of those. They're actually remodeling it to a freaking condominium. But he stayed there and due to the fact that he stayed there, other serial killers would go and stay there. Hmm. They also made a show of this on Netflix, I think. This Netflix is Netflix is on top of all of these things. <laughs> supply and demand. Supply and demand of to all of us all of us crazy monsters really. But that's for another time, really. 
And it is reported also that he obviously never had any steady girlfriends that we know of or boyfriends or anything like that. He also could never hold a steady job. Even though his sister, his sister's name is Rosa Flores, she was saying that he was working as a street sweeper in LA at some point. Well, if he had no ambition and no educational background... That's as close as a job he got to. That's about to. all you can do is sweep the dirt on the road. But what are you going to do when you have a hard cocaine and weed habit? You sweep the dirt, honey. Other than that, what are you going to be doing? You're going to be stealing things if you're good at it. Yeah. <laughs> he starts burglarizing again to support all of his habits and everything that he has going on. And did you know that cocaine is actually good to help subside or minimize epileptic seizures. I did not know this. Yeah, so his cocaine habit actually had a positive benefit. The more you know. <laughs> the more you know. And this is backed by an article that I found on PubMed, which is very good if you're in school or whatever, for scientific research papers. It's like a legit website, PubMed. Check it out. So it's true. It's a fact. Cocaine helps with epileptic seizures. We're not recommending but <laughs> I know we're not, but I'm just saying that it helped minimize his epilept epileptic seizures that he was having since he was two when that freaking cabinet fell on him. Uh. And even though his sister said this, that he was having epileptic seizures since the cabinet fell on him, the authorities weren't actually sure if he had epilepsy or not. So right now we don't know if he really does or not. Also during this time in LA, he was increasingly turning to Satan and cults of death and devil worship because of the satanic panic. He actually also had a tattoo artist carve a pentagram slash pentacle, a five-cornered symbol that we know a pentagram is, on his hand. Yeah, before this... On his palm. Before this case, the only thing you... I, don't, I didn't know anything about this case mm -hmm. or what the guy looked like, but you showed me a picture just as a... Hey, this is what we're doing. Yeah, he that's like carved in his palm. Yeah, that, <laughs> by pic the two that picture was crazy. Yeah, and so I want to mention that um, I have a little thing here from a San Diego forensic psychologist. His name is Reed Malloy. Malloy. He was explaining that why he might have turned to like Satanism. He said that he might have been interested in Satanism and I quote, it's often the function of a psych psychopathic mind to see things in absolute values, either good or evil. There is no perspective in between. When the church, like the church failed Richard, he then turned to the extreme opposite. So that's maybe why he turned to Satanism. Mental health. He really needed some mental health here. But... He was living with a friend in LA for four months, and this friend, his name is Earl Gregg Jr., and he's going to be important later on. He swore that when Richard was living with him, he wasn't like what he heard on the news that was like what Richard had become. He was saying that even though like Richard was a little bit weird, he knew that his friend had some pretty bizarre beliefs. And even his uh, Gregg's mother-in-law, who also met Richard, she said that Richard often spoke warmly of the devil and she said it was like Satan was his friend and it was like it was watching over him. 
So I guess he was very comfortable talking to anyone about the devil, right? Gotcha. So now he has been in LA for five years. And it is April 10th, two days before my birthday, April 10th, 1984. And he's been bumming around, he's been couch surfing, staying at hotels, smoking weed, busting some lines of cocaine, burglarizing places. And this is the date that he finally snapped. And nobody really knows why, and I really couldn't find why. Like, this is the date that he snapped. What happened on April 10th? Well, I want to give a trigger warning first of violence and rape. And everything from now on is it's an explicit content warning. If you don't want to listen to it, don't listen to it anymore. You've been warned. You've really been warned. So we're going to be talking about a lot of violence. And also, I want you to notice how disorganized and random he was in his crimes. So he's going to be beginning two years of chaos. And he starts on April 10th in 1984. He murders nine-year-old May Leung in the basement of the hotel that he was staying at in San Francisco. He raped and he beat May before stabbing her to death. And he hung her body from a pipe in the basement. Illustrious. Fucking gross. This is his first killing ever that we know of. And we only knew this in 2009. They connected her murder to Richard Ramirez um, due to DNA that was taken from the crime scene. And in the most recent news in 2016, officials disclosed more evidence that there might have been a second perpetrator and that like when Mew was murdered but the only thing that they could release was that this person might have been like a young kid at the time and since they didn't have any more evidence they had lack of evidence they haven't proceeded to anything else well at least they caught Richard from for this he goes on from April to June 28th 1984 79-year-old Jenny Vincao was brutally murdered in her apartment in L.A. So this is murder number two. From a 9-year-old to a 79-year-old lady. She had been stabbed repeatedly while asleep in her bed. And her throat was slashed so deep that her head was almost decapitated from her body. Ramirez's fingerprint was found on a mesh screen that he removed from the window that he used to break in. So he's using his burglary skills. He, yeah. To break in and murder people now. Yep, he's putting all that shit that he learned before to use now. Then, on March 17, 1985, so it's a little bit of time between June 28, 1984 to 1985 that we know of. Ramirez attacked 22-year-old Maria Hernandez outside of her home when she was pulling in into her garage in Rosemead, California. He shot her in the face with a 22 caliber handgun. She then, she survived that attack. I'm sorry if you hear my dog. She's having a little nightmare right now. <laughs> the cutest nightmare. She's really having a little nightmare. But... Maria, she survived this because she, when 
he was pointing the gun to shoot at her she was raising her arms like in a defense like don't attack me face and she had a keychain on her hand when she was doing that and he shot the 22 like pistol whatever the bullet hit <laughs> the bullet hit her keychain and it, like flew off really if it, it saved her life no way yeah so then he decided that he was gonna go in the house and maria had a roommate her name was daily okosaki and she was 24 she heard all of this going on outside and she was hiding behind one of the counters in her kitchen and ramirez came in and he was looking around and then when she went to like go peek over he shot her in, in the face and she died wow yeah i mean anything we can take from here is don't come out from your hiding spot until like many hours later yeah. i don't know wait hold, let's back up a second though yeah so he attacked this woman after she pulled into her driveway maria. and was on her way yeah maria and she's on her way into the house mm -hmm. and in the face shot her in the face shot her but she went like this but what is his goal I don't know. You want to get more into it? Sure. I mean, I I kind of understood like if he was robbing things back in his younger days, and he was, he, you know, he needed money, he needed things yeah. to survive. And so he you. went from a child, yeah, to an elderly person, to a regular twenty-two-year-old, and now he's killing the roommate. Yeah, like you said, not it's like spur. It's too sporadic. Mm -hmm. He has no purpose. He really doesn't. So far, anyway. But within that hour after he finished killing the roommate he goes to another home invasion and he pulls out a gun to 30 year old Sai Leon Yu also known as Veronica out of her car she was parked at like at a local park called Monterey Park and I don't know if she was just parked at the parking lot or what like what happened but he pulled her out of the car and with the same 22 caliber handgun, he shot her twice. And then he fled. And she was pronounced dead at the scene. And then they took her to the hospital, but she was dead. Rest in peace. All these people in the same day. So two of the murders and an attempted third, which is the girl that survived by putting her hand on her face with the keychain. This was enough to attract extensive media coverage. On Richard Ramirez they described him as a curly haired with bulging eyes and white spaced rotten teeth they go on to call him and like they actually called him like very <laughs> funny names they were first trying to call him the walk-in killer that's the lamest name I've ever heard the walk-in killer we're gonna talk about the walk-in killer today guys <laughs> Then they called him the Valley Intruder, because I guess he was doing attacks in the in the Valley of California. But luckily, someone um, with some better creativity, they called him the Night Stalker. And that's what we know him as now. Ten days later, on March 27th in 1985, he entered the home that he robbed a year before. Just outside of Whittier, California, at approximately 2 a.m., and he killed a man that was just sleeping in his bed. His name was Vincent Cesara, who was 64. 
with a gunshot to his head from his 22 caliber handgun. His wife, Maxine Cesara, who was 44, she woke up from the gunshot and Ramirez, he beat her and then bound her hands and demanded to know where all of her valuables were. So, of course, she's like telling her, like telling him wherever the valuables were. So he, when he was ransacking the room, Maxine was able to escape her bounds and she was reaching for a shotgun that was under the bed that's usually loaded. She pulls out the shotgun and she points it at Ramirez. He's looking, she's looking at him and Ramirez is like, okay, like he's, he's about to get shot, right? She pulls the trigger and it's not loaded. And you want to know why it's not loaded? Why? Because Vincent had taken out the, like, the uh, shotgun. The shotgun shells. Shells or whatever. Because their grandkids had just visited. And he didn't want a loaded handgun in the house. And he just never, like, reloaded it again. Keep your guns loaded safely. And your bats and knives and whatever you keep in your your bedroom. also away from children. Yeah. So, Richard is fucking pissed. Right. He gets so upset. He shoots her three times with his twenty-two caliber handgun. Of course he's pissed now. He's like, you bitch. He went to the kitchen and he grabbed a knife from the kitchen. And he mutilated her body with the knife. He stabbed her several times. He then gouged her eyes out with his hands. And he put it in a jewelry box that he found in the room. Put the eyeballs in the jewelry box that he took after he was done. And then he left. And the autopsy uh, report luckily said that all of this happened to Maxine when she was dead. Vincent and Maxine's bodies were discovered by their son. Can you imagine walking into that? Terrible. No, I couldn't. Their son's, um, their son's name is Peter. And the only thing that they could find that Richard left behind was his footprints. And they could determine that it was a pair of Avia sneakers in the flower beds around the house. And the police photographed and they casted them. And this is the only solid evidence that they have against him. Just a pair of sneaker a sh- prints. A shoe print was all it had. That's all they had. But they knew that there was a serial killer at large. A little later on, on May 14th, 1985, Richard returned to Monterey Park and he entered the home of Bill Doy, who was 66, and his disabled wife Lillian, who was 56. He entered and he surprised Doy in the bedroom and he shot him in the face with a 22 caliber handgun. He loves that. He, it's probably the only gun that he has because he's a fucking loser. That's his favorite move. 22 to the face. He then goes on to beat Doi into a consciousness after he beats him in the like shoots him in the face. I mean, do the twenty two not kill him? I don't know. Shoot him in the face and then beat him up. Yeah, and then he enters Lillian's bedroom, the master bedroom, I suppose. He bounces her with thumb cuffs, which is only like cuffing the thumbs, but he bounces her with the thumb cuffs. He ransacks the room, and then he rapes her. A 56-year-old lady. Disabled. Disabled, too. Bill Doy died of his injuries when he was in the hospital, but luckily Lillian survived. 
Her like. I mean, that's a hell of a way to her survive, husband died. though. Yeah, her, her husband lover. died. She was raped. She was ransacked. She lost everything that she had. I know. Her mental peace for the rest of her life. I don't know how you can recover from that. Especially, like, your loving husband dies. But... You, you don't recover from that. I that's, don't think you that's do. How, yeah. And we're gonna be ending this one with this one. This it's, is the last murder of Bob. Uh, I don't want to say that it's the one. worst one because they're all horrible. Hmm. But this is pretty bad. So this would be the fourth murder coming up that he's committed. I mean, don't be quizzing me like that, but yeah, okay. it looks like it. <laughs> on a dark night, on May 29th, 1985, Richard drove a stolen car to Monrovia City, which is located in the San Gabriel Mountains that we talked about extensively before. He stops at a house of Mabel Mel. She was also known as Ma. She was 83. And she lived with her disabled sister who was bedridden. And her name was Florence Long. And she went by Nettie, who was 81. Old ladies. He finds a hammer in the kitchen when he's breaking in. And he goes and he bludgeons and he bounced Nettie in her bedroom. Toolbox killer vibes. But two old elderly women. I remember my grandma was 80. She was frail in the middle. Right. But like, you know, uh, someone that goes after kids and elderly deserve an extra special place in hell. Like, yeah, Bitterker and Norris were bad, but like these people? Fucking the Night Stalker is fucking gross. He's, yeah, he's gross, but there's almost a sense of, like, when he shoots somebody in the face so quickly like that, at least they didn't get tortured for, he like, did. a whole day. I know. When you so, when you I'm, put it like that... I'm, I, I mean, I'm not sticking up for anyone here. No, I know. But it almost, like, just going through these cases, it almost feels a little bit easier just to hear Because about. there's an element of surprise you don't see it coming. And there's a, yeah, and there's yeah. not really, a, like, as much torture. I know, but now you're beating 83 year old ladies with a hammer well it's ridiculous <laughs> so she For was sure. 83 Nettie was 83 no Nettie was 81 and Ma was 83 he finds the hammer in the kitchen that I was saying and he bludgeons and he binds Nettie in her bedroom and then he bludgeoned Ma before using an electrical cord to shock her while she was still alive throughout the whole process he then goes to rape her disabled sister, which is Nettie. And she was, like, bedridden and she couldn't move. After he was done raping Nettie, he grabbed one of Ma's lipsticks and he drew a pentagram on her thigh. And then he wrote it on, like, several walls in the bedroom. Two days later, they were both found alive in the house. But unfortunately, Ma, she died, like, from the wounds, and Nettie survived. And that's it. That's all I, I want to read today. <laughs> we will pick up where he left off. This guy is special. This guy's sick. Luckily, and everyone but you knows that he's dead. <laughs> Rest in hell, beach. <laughs> Well, part two. Part there's, a, there's a whole lot left. There's a whole lot left, but I will. Part two. 
we're really going to try and get it up as soon as possible so it like goes with part one but um we'll cover the rest of his atrocities and then we will close part two and then we can move on to other horrible fucking monsters and we already have several listener requests so we can pick from there okay we'll do that so yeah and we'll shout you give us a um an apple podcast review if you want to i actually wanted to um i don't have my phone with me anymore but i think his name was joey sales he left us a five-star review and he was saying very nice stuff on apple podcast reviews you can leave us one there or you can reach us at instagram at monsters true crime and send us your listener requests Hmm. and we will try to go from there sounds good part two coming soon part two coming soon bye bye